Welcome back to the Current State of Music podcast. This is part two of Ian Archer, so we'll get straight into it and I'll see you at the end. You know, I can remember, like, we got involved with um, Guy from the Waterboys, played bass, oh, total dude. Martin Swain, who ran a night in the Water Rats called the Splash Club. It was an acoustic night every no. Tuesday night and just became a kind of fixture. Like, it's played there all the time. And... Uh, and one night, um, a guy came up to me at the bar and, and said, oh, I really like what you did. Um, do you want to come down to the studio sometime? It turns out it was Nigel Godrich. Right. Um, and he'd just finished working on the bands with Radiohead. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, man, that sounds really good, you know. Um, and it's always one of those things I look back on and go, why, why the hell didn't I just go to his studio and see what we could cook up it could have been amazing yeah um, but I started to make slightly I, I was recording a few things at that point in Miriam's dad's studio Miriam had had managed and, and, and worked at her dad's studio in Eastbourne and uh, brilliant place loads of young engineers my age and people who you know so I was kind of going in there but the demos I was making were much more electric and I remember sending them to Nigel and he was kind of like this isn't really what I had in mind and I kind of look back and go yeah I know why because nobody got that like why did I start why did I do Dylan Goes Electric when I made one record you know I think by that stage I made two albums with Sticky that were very preliminary very early steps and they're not really available anymore to be honest because they were such sort of I felt like real tentative steps yeah. and you could do that then without being completely splattered over everywhere for, yeah. for good although there's some of that is out there and I'm really proud of it it's really it looks great you know there's a lot of live videos and things but uh, yeah what I'm prattling on but um, that's I, Nigel Godrich that didn't work out you know I, so I was kind of I was quite gung-ho about my own vision at that point right um, but a few things just things just stopped sort of momentum dried up on that really pretty pretty rapidly I went for some major legal meetings didn't really get anywhere yeah so the whole the whole idea of taking the nucleus of what had happened and trying to kind of put make it something more you know capitalise on whatever that yeah. was I was not really the guy to do that I needed somebody yeah. in my world um, who could do that and you realise that's that everybody I work with now it's like who's, who's your partner who is doing that and if someone good is there can work really well with the artist and as a manager, effectively, can work brilliantly with the artist and can, but knows how to work with people and move things forward within the industry. It's that's that's practically 40, 50 percent of, of the whole enterprise. Yeah. You can't do it without the right human. Do you think that that's not necessarily talked about enough? So there's a lot of obviously people doing it themselves because you can record and make a record quite easily. If yeah. you know, if you've got the right idea, you can kind of bring that to life quite easily now. Yeah. But still, to get it 
to push it somewhere you still need yeah you need every struggle. I you mean, need a sort of a network and, of things to happen and I recognise by the way you know I had been managed by, by Steve Stockman who was my Presbyterian minister great still brilliant friend unbelievable I think in terms of us trying to move into the the industry in the London epicentre yeah. like that that's and you know Steve and I would have had conversations to that effect that like yeah you know this is challenging and it's challenging for him with his already you know very very busy job so he had done a phenomenal job of getting yeah, me yeah, I was gonna say. to that point I mean, just off the scale kind of um, and, and remarkable belief in me and I owe him you know a debt for life like for doing that so I, I in no way do I kind of take anything away from what Steve did but um, but you just realise you just realise that that like depth of understanding of the industry and the people within it and the ability to kind of and the process of record release at any given moment it's it's absolutely essential you can't you can't really do it without that and when it appears that someone's done it without that it's really because they've made a great record on their own and someone somewhere along the way has gotten really excited about it and yeah. done that you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. it appears like they've done it themselves but someone else has to get excited at some point yeah. and so at times maybe there is a kind of groundswell of you can band camp it and you get this incredible boof people jump on you or you make a great video these days you can't I guess you can make a great video everybody reacts but I've worked with a lot of people who have had massive success on YouTube and it does not necessarily translate to um, being a massive recording artist by any stretch I mean the Hudson Taylor boys for one thing you know we've just had a number one record in Ireland this week um, and I started working with those guys maybe seven years ago seven or eight years ago they were a huge YouTube like bass total sensational massive amount of plays so compelling brilliant Irish buskers you know they're yeah, fantastic yeah. but it, but this is the length of time it's taken for them to kind of take the the, the energy of that and turn it into yeah. and it's probably a bit like becoming a massive sensation at a festival making a record in tour with Joe Martin and having a single of the week at the time yeah our paths are not that dissimilar and that's why I could work with those kind of artists it's like like I know you where you are like. not like yeah. you, you got all this buzz but trying to kind of capitalise you need the mentors and the people around you to help you to kind of yeah take it to the next point you know so I enjoy being in that position now because I sort of feel like been there and come crashing you know yeah sorry well that's something else that we might come back to but let's um let's pick up some pace through your career just don't need to minute detail but let just how did the next sort of few years sort of how did snow patrol happen what then happened yeah what did i out, do out the back of that do you know what i mean yeah i i went back to Went back to Belfast for a period of time, lived with, with Steve. Um, Miriam moved back, we lived there for a while. We can't, then, what did I do? 
playing all the time, playing my own shows, things are kind of all right. Then, then moved to London. At the point I moved to London, there's definitely a sense that I've got to do something different. Um, and Miriam, when when we moved to London, we were not married at this point. We were going out, and when when we moved to London, Miriam started to get a lot of jobs in the industry. Started work temp in lots of record companies. I met I met a guy who had a publishing company affiliated to Universal, who MCA at the time actually, who um, I I met via Miriam and he Kenny, and and he had a lot of belief in me also then. So, so someone else had kind of stepped in, signed to Universal. Was signed to Sharpville, which was his pu- publishing company, and started a project with a female singer-songwriter called Brew. Ran for we wrote for about two and a half, two years. Played, started to play shows. Really exciting project, and this was around the time when I guess you know, beat a band, Gomez. And, and and then the sort of trip hop phenomenon were all kind of happening yeah. around these these moments. So we were very much in a kind of lo-fi. D had a credible soul voice. I was playing his guitar. We had a sort of um, it was it was a it was a cool thing. Um, but anyway, we kind of blew apart. I got dropped by Universal, um, and. At the point where we fell apart, I was still signed to Universal. Johnny from Snow Patrol. I'd started to play guitar with a few different people as a session player live. Juliet Turner from, from Ireland, I was playing with Julie a lot. Um, and then Johnny from Snow Patrol called me one night and said, uh, man, we're, uh, we've just finished, they just finished the second record I've been listening to, it sounded awesome for Jeepster. And then he said, uh, we're coming tomorrow to play a TV show. Can you uh, play guitar? Because the, the sound is bigger now, and we've realised we're rehearsing. We need an extra guitar player. So I just showed up. Shane McGowan was on as well, and we were on. I just showed up, and we we set up our gear and sound checked and played, and yeah. sounded great and uh, felt great. Lovely playing with the boys and. Um, so did you know like Gary and the rest of the band? I know, I, I, not particularly well. I, knew, I, I hadn't really spent any time with Gary. Like we'd said hi, gone to a few patrol shows and sort of said hi after the cake. But yeah. we, didn't, we, we hadn't grown up together or anything by any stretch. Um, so I knew the boys very loosely. At that time it was a, th- it was a three, no it was kind of four actually because it was the essential three piece of Gary, Mark and, and Johnny. But then uh, Tom, uh, Simpson, basically had a deck and a little Casio keyboard and he would scratch in during the songs oh, right. and he would play this kind of Casio keyboard it was really super cool actually he just had some great little moments where he'd throw samples in and you know throw, throw a little bit of kind of voiceover from a record or something on the tunes it was it was a cool setup and so then the, after that TV show in London they said okay Dublin next weekend we're playing live to camera and TV 2 Feeder right. were playing. It was Feeder and Snow Patrol live, yeah. live on MTV Two. I literally rehearsed the whole set, showed up and played live. The camera with the patrol. It was kind of like they. Uh, it was you know. It was amazing to see their sort of level of faith they made yeah. to do that. I was like, you guys are crazy, and um, but it was great. It was really really fun. Had a great show, and and uh, then it was like, all right, you're in the band, let's go, you know. And we just started playing 
um, I went on the road with yeah. the boys from there for about a year. Um, and did you start writing with them at that time? Like so were during they, that were time, they sort of we write the songs, but you can, or was it just like no, you're part of us, we all write together? Well, that was the that was the incredible thing. I think Gary is the most. He inspired me on a different level than anybody else I'd worked with before because of his he's got a remarkably open um, musical personality and he um, I don't know anybody else who appreciates he seems to kind of relish and know how to develop the value of a team the way he does and um, and value people like that you know and I'd probably been spending a lot of time working with my hand over my book you know and Gary had been just he, he was just able to sit back do a load of work and have absolutely no need to disguise it or yeah, or, yeah. Or, or protect it or whatever he's just kind of like yeah get in come on what are we doing but he's very 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 driven very very forthright kind of it could protect things in other ways I guess you yeah. know there were always bo- there's, there's always kind of boundaries but they're not like it's it's, it's very uh, everything's in the clear you know so there's a kind of completely different way of working for me and so we were kind of writing and um, the whole time we would kind of rehearse we were on tour with Ash every sound check that we did rather than that we, rather than sound check three Snow Patrol songs we'd probably sound check one and then start jamming and playing things we'd have tapes of that and there was a, lo- a load of stuff that was all starting to just happen because as a band we were bringing ideas you know yeah. just playing out yeah. trying out different melodies over different backdrops and that's really where the the, the, the songs for Final Straws came, came out of at the same time I was writing a bunch of stuff um, and we were playing that stuff so we were kind of going into the rehearsal room it's a kind of recording studio rehearsal room with Marcus in, in Glasgow and he, he was recording all we recorded all of my stuff and recorded all of their stuff at the same yeah. time it was like this whole collection of demos that all sounded the same yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, it was very cross pollinated they played on my stuff I played on theirs it was like and we were just ideas were just bouncing through the whole thing it was a really lovely period of time Um, I probably had a sense again that I didn't really uh, belong totally in a band you know to some extent like like this is brilliant but I yeah I might have to work at times I could do this at times but I'm not yeah, sure I can do it's this. It's not your full time. Well, I can I? I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, um, when you um, just skipping back a little bit, like when you got dropped by Universal, was that a bit of a blow? And then obviously, when the Snow Patrol thing came on, you thought, "Oh, actually, I'm sort of safe here." Was there sort of that aspect to it? Um, it was definitely a blow. But there was enough momentum in what I was doing at the time where in some ways it was a relief. Right. Actually, yeah. It it's always like a little bit of a 
ego smash because you're like, oh, they don't want me. They don't see any potential in me. And they really, really didn't because they didn't have a clue who or what I was, really. Yeah. You know, there was nobody. There wasn't anybody at Universal. I mean, Kenny wasn't working with them anymore. So there wasn't anybody at Universal who gave a, gave a damn, really. Which, which it's not a judgment on Universal at all. It just was yeah. just the way it was. Um, so that is a little bit difficult, but it's when that is the case, it's quite nice to get dropped because you're like, oh, okay, I'm not being held in a situation where nobody cares, you yeah. know, um, for better or worse, you know, and, and loads of time we spend as artists and, and creators and nobody cares. Like that's that's just, it's not anybody else's fault. It's not a judgment on anybody you work with or whatever. It's just, for some reason, I'm not doing anything that anybody cares about, you know? Yeah. Like, it's a shame, but that's what it is. Um, so yeah, two-edged sword in terms of, in terms of being, being dropped. Um, but it, it, it's that thing with the, you know, I was a kind of major label, major published writer and that was, that have a certain level of oh it's kind of cool you know when you're not anymore you know so yeah. in some ways there were a few things about that that were, that were difficult for sure um, but the patrol thing lasted about a year I then I don't even know how we sort of by osmosis they kind of knew I knew probably we need to do separate things because I'd love to do this but I'm not sure I can commit the whole of my life to yeah I can't, I'm not sure I can marry you guy <laughs> you know um, and uh, and um, so Nathan joined the band and I went on to sign a record we, we, I'd also been involved with the with the um, label with the reindeer section records right which were a side project of uh, Gary's so Joel and, and I've done a bit of work on those and they were uh, released by a label called Bright Star which was um, subsidiary of Played Again Sam right. and so I signed a deal to Bright Star by Played Again Sam Bright Star soon we're no more I made a record called Flood the Tanks um, as a solo artist on on Played Again Sam and then um, I made another record, same label. Um, and uh, oh, is it we? Anyway, I can't. My my mind. It's good. Um, but yeah, I made two records on that on that label: that Flood the Tanks and Magnetic North. In the meantime, Snow Patrol went stratospheric, and um, we we yeah. A top five record, um, top five single with Ron, yeah. Ivor Novello Award, which I mean, effectively is another like all of those things are life changing, you know, yeah, yeah. for 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 the band and for me. Um, and uh, the boys were in America, so I went and picked up the Ivor. Subsequently, kind of got to know a lot of people at the academy at the at, at what was Basca. Um, 
but it's now the Ivers Academy and, and I'm, st- I'm not still very heavily involved there. Um, so that then, I'd made two records, to be honest, the second record, Magnetic North, pummeled me like nothing else in my life. Like I, right. I, it sort of decimated me. Why do you think that was? Were you trying to sort of push something that wasn't necessarily happening or? To be honest, like it was just unbelievably poor management of expectation. Right. Um, from your own well it's always from your own point of view or from others I mean, point of view of what they're expecting from you as well it's not what people were expecting from me I don't know might have been I can't, I can't really account for that but um, it's always your own responsibility to some extent isn't it like yeah. to manage your expectations but I feel like there's a certain level of hype right. um, in my circle that was really unnecessary, you know. Like it was not a, it was not a true depiction of what yeah. was um, was happening at all. And and it was one of those situations where, like, you know, it's it's no hard no hard feelings, but um, there was a major distraction that occurred within my core team at that right. time you know and, and another act that got signed for you know unheard of sums of money for publishing and da 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 who are an unknown act um, so nothing went on to happen with them but literally resort all the resources the entire, went that way. entirety of the resources went towards this act who weren't really really releasing anything or doing right. anything they were kind of, they just signed a deal but uh, I was literally ass in the wind putting out a record on the just the the bottom end of tours you know op- opening in horrible places for really uh, just doing really unnecessary shows but yeah. nobody putting any creative energy into the thing um, how did that impact you Sort of personally, and you I know, like with hard. Miriam, obviously you're together working, yeah, and I cr- trying to create a life, and sort of things have been kind of you know following a sort of trajectory, you know, mm-hmm. exciting things happening, and then something like that. How does that? I mean, it'd be like to an extent of losing your job or having something terrible happen at work or something. Yeah, it, sma- it, it absolutely smashed me. Like I had a I had a full blown meltdown. Like. Right. I probably spent two months just just in bits. Totally couldn't couldn't really function. You know, I was I was incredibly let down at that point. Um, I don't think anybody involved really understood or knew right. the extent. I don't think I could have expressed it to them really. Yeah. And um, and I stuck with a few people even for a couple of years after that because it was just like. I don't want this to define what's happened, but I had a I, I, I had a, a full-blown depressive experience. It, like like it was, I was hit harder than I've ever been in my life. I think yeah. you know at that point. But in a way, that makes you you know 
that changed me like it changed me like nothing's changed me before maybe it would be akin to when I spent the summer when I was 13 years old yeah and I was in a, I was in a major depression at that point too um, but both things sort of seismically shifted yeah become formative experiences if they don't yeah. actually destroy you then they obviously shape your future big time just work completely differently off the back of you know everything is appreciated on a different level yeah after that yeah, you know yeah. what I mean every, every little thing doesn't matter what it is I don't take anything for granted I, I really don't you know where it could have been like from the 20s it's kind of like yeah whatever you know let's make another thing now I'm like every little success every little thing that comes through I'm like oh, it's mana you know yeah, and then that's that's kind of self-perpetuating as well, though, isn't it? Because I think if people see that, then uh, yeah, maybe, maybe you know, people gravitate. Well, I find that mm-hmm. people gravitate towards that mm-hmm. because they know it's you don't take it for granted, yeah. and that you'll put the work in that deserves to be put into it yeah. because it's not a given. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what that is. You realise like you can put your absolute all you know in something and it just like the energy in does not even remotely reflect the energy out like it's not those and in music it's a really really good thing to just come to terms with that that is not an equation and you can believe that you're gonna you know, a project because you're so invested in it, it's gonna come through. It's not it's not the way it works. And people tell you what you've made's brilliant or you're this or you're that or we're gonna do this or you know, now that you've got us on your team. Yeah, yeah. It's not it just doesn't doesn't pan out that way. Do you have quite a good barometer for sort of is this working, is this not? No. Should we carry on with it? Should we sort of stop that there and maybe work on something else and give I, that a bit of distance? I can. It, it, no, I just feel like it's impossible to tell whether your barometer is good or not. It's got to be good to some extent because, um, and you have to trust your instincts on those things. They're not always right. Mm. I don't feel like from one day to the next the decisions I make are necessarily the right. But the, pro- the, the problem with that is, is like a barometer for who, a barometer for what. Because the thing that I've realized and the thing like, you know, say, watching Snow Patrol go stratospheric with, you know, Ron becomes top five hit, later number one hit. Um, you kind of watch that process happen and realize, yes, brilliant song, you know, yes, brilliant band. But Jazz Summers is a part of that. And he has got the, 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 like the infrastructure and the and the cogs that all line up with that. It's like it's people recognizing what they've got yeah. in their hands, c- kind of seeing it and going, "Oh, I can become another right." That thing's lined up to 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 create loads of traction. I can mechanically get absolutely in tune with that and I know exactly what to do to take that momentum further and that 
that's what you on all of the projects at work that's what happens it's not just about the creative work and the the people that are close to it it's about this entire explosion of energy where everybody everything lines up yeah at the right time things line up so when i'm doing something new i'm trying to i cannot account for people getting it lining up with it who's involved if the right radio guys involved or, or woman who will understand it and know who to take it to it, but that in itself as one little bit of the cog yeah. has got the work like yeah. if that doesn't work or maybe not it's taken it to streaming platforms and get and, and champion it at new music friday or whatever it is but if those bits if there's not someone who really deeply understands how to equate that to the the media gatekeepers then you kind of sunk yeah. you know or the media gatekeepers need to find their own enthusiasm for it whatever that is yeah. but you're relying on all of those things lining up and I can't account for that all I can do is go in my experience of everything from living on milk and alcohol to Soccer Mommy which is the last record I've listened to yesterday yeah. in all of my musical absorbings <laughs> like I think this feels like it can play a valuable part yeah, in that. Yeah, it's got a place in that. Uh, that can add, this can add on to the end of that. Yeah. And I think that's a nice addition to all of this history of music. And God knows there's just so much of it. But yeah, this feels like it's it could nestle somewhere. Yeah. That's all I can do, you know. Maybe it'll nestle somewhere in the... Somewhere down there in the in the in the leaves, or maybe it'll reach 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 the sky. I don't know. Yeah. You know. But that's all you can do. How was it when when Snow Patrol went massive? And you how how was how was that for you? Did you did you have a pang of oh man, I want to be on that boat? Or were you thinking no, that's, that boat's <laughs> not for me actually? I was just like no, it was it was. I mean, it was amazing. It was so exciting. I was so happy for them. I was so, um, I was working in, I was, I was living in Eastbourne. I was, I was working in three uh, youth centers, which were really, a couple of them really violent and, and um, extremely challenging. What were you doing? I was a youth worker. I was, right. I was, I was um, yeah, I was, I was doing youth work. In, in, what led you to that? Um, when I was in, when I got dropped, was it when I, no, it was when I was in, in, in London before I signed to Universal, I sort of feel like maybe it was, or sometime around then. I started work anyway in a, in a homeless hostel, a couple of homeless hostels in London. A friend of mine, um, Carrie, uh, was working there, a friend, uh, one of my best friends who worked there previously. So I started doing this cover work, just going in, working when I could, and trying to use the downtime that I had as a musician, sort of some useful, and working with home, homeless young men. So I'd done that, and then when I moved to Eastbourne, I was finishing off Flood the Tanks, my first solo record, and I was going a bit mad at Miriam, sort of, to her credit, she knows how to deal with me, you know, because I was getting a bit low and a bit stirred crazy I don't know behaviour is a bit weird um, going down the tubes and she was just like get out 
stop this and get out and get a job and do something because you're going mad yeah. and uh, and it was brilliant and I didn't want to at all I was just like oh no I don't want to do that and I started so I, the first thing I did was started working with disabled people at Shaftesbury Society um, and then I, I started doing evening youth work at these youth centres and getting pool balls chucked in my head and then I uh and then I started working at the foyer, which is effectively a kind of homeless, um, youth homeless sort of center in, in Eastbourne. But I was doing all of that stuff at the time when suddenly it was like, you're going to have a top five hit, you know, you're, you're going to be a co-writer on a, on a massive UK record. It's like, for me, it was off the charts. I couldn't. I couldn't get my head around it, you know, because yeah. I was kind of just sort of, yeah, small town, trying to get by. Um, my advance had run out, but I record the release, you know. Yeah, it was my blow. It's amazing. It's best, best news, <laughs> you know. And it's my mates, you know. It's kind of like oh, yeah, that. It's yeah. great, you know. So I didn't really have any pangs, and I knew I sort of intrinsically knew, even though of course it'd be wonderful to be in that band at that time experiencing that energy a fairly good sense I was in the right place too you know as much as yeah you look back at times and you do go oh jeez that'd be great like you know but I think uh, yeah I think without in any way saying I'd rather not be in that band because I love them all I love like I'm still insanely involved more yeah, so yeah, now yeah. than happening a long yeah, time yeah, of course. so they're all my best pals and my besties like so I'm kind of you know there'd be a lot of fun but I think there's part of me that recognised as well that I could probably go absolutely nuts doing something like that so yeah. it's probably a good idea not to <laughs> and so then how did like we're now sat in your lovely studio where you work with a whole heap of people how did sort of the songwriting for other people gig sort of become your essentially your lifestyle? Yeah, well, at the time, whenever the, uh, the the Snow Patrol stuff was kicking off, I signed to Sam Winwood at Cobalt. Even though that was kicking off, I still nobody was interested. Publishing wise, done the universal thing. Was out of that. I was talking to people, but. No one wanted to know, effectively. Yeah. Um, and the, and apart from a couple of people, and and the people who really wanted to know were Cobalt, and they were a concept at that point. They were, you know, it was a kind of like attic room um, in in London. Yeah. The, the, there were maybe four people in there, and one of whom was Sam Winwood. One of whom was Sass Metcalf. Now Cobalt is obviously practically a major publisher, you know. But I was Sam's first signing, basically. Wow. And um, I loved the idea of it. And they were completely... The whole idea from the beginning was transparency, that, that I could see everything that was happening at all times, that it wasn't really about advances, that it was about pipeline income, and that I just had people who would work with me directly at any given point and I, I sort of got that sense from it. it was like I've got a really good relationship yeah. here and I'm getting involved with something early so I've got 
there's the potential for a lot of loyalty and a lot of energy to be put into what I'm doing. Yeah. So whenever flood, whenever magnetic north and I had that, I just came part of the same. Sam kind of stepped in shortly after and uh, and sort of said, "Look, why don't you just try writing some other people, just take pressure off your own stuff and try doing some sessions?" And I was like. And at the time I was going, I was thinking to myself, I just want a job in a bookshop. I don't want right. to make music anymore. Right. Um, I don't want to be the guy at the end of the line who um, has to listen to everybody in the room talk about them in third person. Yeah. I don't want to do any of this anymore. It's just, it's, it's, it just hurts me, you know. Yeah. I want a wage at the end of the week rather than advances. So I was kind of like, I kind of feel like I'm out of this. But two things happened, like, can I also off that record? Um, got synced with Grey's Anatomy, right. so which at the test syncs aren't quite as big news these days. I mean, they are; they're great, but they're, they're but at that time, that, that was really was a big, big deal and well, could sort out my year, you know, like yeah. like if not two. And I was like, oh wow, oh okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm throwing something out that. I don't need to throw it right now and maybe that just buys me a little bit of time to figure out what I need to do Sam suggested writing so I started that's that's what I started doing I was like yeah right let's put in some sessions and I started working with some great A&R people um, great artists needless to say but the interesting thing about the A&R fraternity then was um, that if you got a product, writing doesn't make you any money unless a song does well. So you're kind of yeah. effectively just using your time uh, for 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 no recompense. But I started to pick up a couple of productions, and with those productions, I'd do some vocals, and I don't have a decent preamp. And I was kind of straight up with the NR guy. I'm like, well, I don't have a decent preamp. He said, look, I'll just put in some money for preamp for the session, and so I got a focus right. You know, little things that people start to invest in you and see your potential, and it's not so like. So, had you not really been sort of taking much notice of studio kit or anything like that up to that point, or did you have a fairly good idea? I'd had a 002. I'd, it flood the tanks. The first record, so the record I made, I'd mixed on, a sh- like a set of. Hi- mixed and then gave it to a brilliant master and engineer, but I mixed on a set of hi fi speakers. And a 002, no, 001, right? And um, in a, in the box room in our flat in Eastbourne, yeah. Um, and Dave Lynch mixed a couple of tracks on that too. Um, the better sound was, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so and that was kind of crash course in Pro Tools. That's why I went mad. Um, uh, but then I, I think at that point I was working off an M box, and, and yeah. And a set of Rogers, really lovely Rogers hi-fi speakers or something. You know, I didn't have any gear, and I was working in our one-bed apartment and riding with people there. Um, and you just rely on on patronage. You know, you t- like you need the people to come along who just get see you, give you a little bit, help you out. You know. Yeah. And there were some people along the way. Even though I signed a Cobalt and had this. You know, massive success with Snow Patrol. That money's all in the pipeline, and it's, it's, you know, t- 
takes a long time for all that to come through. It's still yeah. pretty skint. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're trying to live life in London and and you know pay a mortgage on your own flat, it's not. It wasn't wasn't like I was quids in in any way. No, no. So, um, so yeah, I worked. I, I worked with a bunch of people, but I did. I probably did like five years like that with little successes. Nothing really going to radio. Nothing really making it through the net. Like the odd production on the odd track, and then um, and Cobalt just keeping me going and sending me through things and the old trip to Nashville to work with a few people wouldn't really amount to anything and just meeting people but um, then I worked with Jake Bug and uh, and it just blew up caught fire didn't it it just blew up we we kind of from the get go I had you know was doing work with Jake that was immediately getting massive responses you know we wrote we wrote Trouble Town in our first session. Um, Zane Lowe played it like two weeks later. I kind yeah. of added, added some bits to it, mixed it. Zane Lowe played it um, on hottest. I don't know if it was the hottest record at that point, or if, if he just he was played it on the show. Then we did Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt was immediately hottest record. I mean, we didn't, there wasn't an album lined up. Yeah. Then we did Taste It. Then Two Finger. You know. All of these things, I was. We were then in a kind of three-bedroom house in London. I had a studio in a bell tower of a church, but I, I, the, right. I was going back to my house to mix this stuff. It was a much more contained environment. The bell tower. I mean, that record sounds the way it does because the bell tower yeah. is a cool sounding place, but you can't mix in there. Like it's it's, the, it's crazy sounding, you know, for for hearing that and coming out of speakers. Yeah, yeah. But I was recording everything in there. Um, but yeah, all, all so eight tracks, eight co-writes with Jake, and and uh, quite a few productions and mixes on that record. And you know, record went to number one. Um, Lightning Bolt just seems to live and live and live. It's like synced all around the world. You know, yeah. it, it's sort of like just seems to have its own little energy. You know. Yeah. So that kind of that was a bit of a game changer um, to to do that and and the, the great thing about that having been the first after all that amount of work and honing my production skills with other people and my collaboration skills with other people for that to have been the first thing to kick off was amazing because I had worked on it hugely I was yeah. like it, it, it was not something that I'd added a sort of 10% writing credit to yeah. I literally built it you know Jake had come in as a kind of, you know, finger picking, soft singing, um, balladeer right. um, who, who loved Don McLean, you know, and we came out with these kind of like, uh, you know, rock and roll, punk influenced yeah, uh, songs. So we, so it sort of brought a, a real charge of rock and roll to what what Jake did you know and so that was exciting I was like that's a confirmation of your instincts you know yeah um, and it I didn't sc- sound like anything else at the time either did it like there was nothing else that sounded that was no, going I mean, that way at all it was ridiculous and I remember like when we did Trouble Town I remember kind of I recorded that with one like f- fat cascade fathead ribbon mic in front of Jake with guitar and vocal going down that and um, 
crushed crushed it you know uh, and came out of the speakers just was like I'm kind of purposefully making this like Woody Guthrie this is insane am I mad yeah. like um, but it sounds great so I just have to send this this is just yeah. fantastic um, because I for me that ring of authenticity was was super super exciting not just the Jake obviously his performance skills to, to do that's what he does yeah. he sounds like one of those guys um, and plays like them but also to make to sort of bring that sonic touch to it yeah to capture it like that is a it's a it's a bold move isn't it uh, well at that point it really was but the response back was like whoa you know this yeah. is partly I think the cool thing with that you know we'd written the lyric that had real modern council state references it was like yeah. stuck at speed bump city it's the first line you're kind of like you're throwing the new like right up against classic American you know ancient American records you know yeah. which and, and you life in England and in whenever it was like um, 2014 or whatever way longer ago than that. than that surely I don't know I can't remember um, but yeah so that was kind of that was exciting and that that, that opened another door we got an Ivor nomination for that for uh, Two Fingers um, and then a bunch of you know then a bunch of stuff it's not like the floodgates open but I guess in a way that your success has brand you a little bit so yeah. I got certain gigs because I, that record yeah, yeah. was what it was you know um, do you have to be wary of getting gigs because it sounds like that and somebody else wants that and you have to kind of go I can't just do only that thing I have to say no to things maybe because they only want me to recreate what I've already done I, yeah I don't care about that in the same sense as um, I'm thankful for everything I think if somebody wants me to do something I'm like yeah <laughs> I'm kind of like I don't care like if that works <laughs> if we do that because effectively what happens is you do like the amount of stuff that actually gets through the net is yeah. so small yeah that the, the odds are I'll work with this person and someone you, 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 they, they sign a certain way and we'll get it a certain way down the track and they'll either do something else or something will happen I mean, it won't it's not necessarily going to hit the public like there's yeah. tons of stuff that just for like we were saying about the gears and the cogs like it just doesn't line up yeah or the people involved can't make it line up and, and that's really shameful it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes because I'm really invested and I love the artist and yeah. we watch things kind of not quite do what they do but I've been through that I know what that is um, but so I don't really care I'm like if it's someone who comes along and I can say yeah I can do that I'm quite excited to do to, right. to, to, to make yeah, something yeah. to do something that I know how to do a lot of the time I am doing things that are a little bit outside of my comfort zone so it's pushing me out but it's quite not these days guitars are so out of vogue that you don't get there's no one around who's doing that kind of no. thing who wants who wants you to write so when those things do come through it's kind of I'm like yeah 
I'm in, <laughs> you know, I can do that in my sleep, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really care. Like, you know, get do like make, help him make Liam's record or him Gallagher or um, stuff like that. It's just really, it's really exciting to get involved with artists at that level. And, you know, um, certainly like Jake would always have had a nod of the cap towards Oasis and, you know yeah. but that's that's an exciting you know and and I think currently on their song part of British music heritage that we need more of you know we need more brassy brass neck artists out there because it's all just sort of pretty vanilla these days Okay, well that brings us nicely onto the title of the podcast. Oh yeah, good. So what's all right? So current state of music. So you were just saying that um, there's not a lot of sort of guitar-based music at the moment. How do you see the current state of music? Like, where is it for you? And what's your place in it? I think music. I mean. There's a lot of great music around. There's a lot of people making fa- fantastic music, and it depends territorial, territorially what we're uh, referencing. But I think in the UK, I think there's a lot of convenience. I think music is um, in the mainstream is a sort of um, is a convenience thing, both for the consumer listener and for the label right um it's cheap and easy um you know one guy with a mouse the singer send it to one writer or say you know have, have three writers work on it send it to another writer producer send it to another writer producer yeah you know and uh, pretty much everybody is doing that for no money up front right because they're all effectively writers yeah so it's kind of like it's a a massive sort of convenience operation and then the music that comes out is a committee oriented um sort of like generated by people who are moving things around on the screen I think I, I would be really in, interested in doing an audit of the top 40 to see if there is a record where two people have made music together on it. Right. Because I don't... I think well, So you, like physically being in the same place. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if there was a musical interaction right. that occurred on the record. Yeah, yeah. And I would, I would say you'd find like there are no musical interactions on any records in the top 40. Right. That everything has happened systematically and has been um, hugely manipulated in the process. Yeah. So we're all listening to things that are sort of the equivalent of of like um, a sort of reconstituted food, you know. And you no, know, everybody can kind of pig out on something that's that's mass produced and um, laser guided to sort of 
target your surface level taste buds, you know. Yeah. But really, some there is music has stopped. Mainstream music has stopped being about satisfying uh, the part of people that want art. Right. That's not for that anymore. No. It's for something different. And, it, and and the public, in a way, has stopped associating that with that or needing that from music. Like that's a that's sort of what it. And then there are a few people on the fringes who are like the my brothers yeah. of the world, who are the more artistically minded people who are listening to the fringe work yeah and championing like you you know championing work that is that's coming from different angles or whatever you know um, and made in different ways but that's kind of where we are that's not to say that there isn't you know I mean geez, you know, people could kind of go at me you know there's obviously kind of a burgeoning young jazz scene in in East London and you know like you know there are movements and America I think is different because America has a much more genre defined system so they have a huge Americana scene and a bunch of artists who are you know um, like Ethan Gruska or um, even the Casey Musgraves record or like which is a huge mainstream record but it's beautiful and it feels like people played on it you know um it's different there. It feels like there's there's enough populace that people want or are interested in that thing, you know? Yeah. Um, it's a different thing in terms of live, though. I'm talking about records, but... It, I mean, live's a good time, right? Because live's it, we accept, possibly, with coronavirus. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that but could hit given pretty hard. Without that, live is a really seems to be a really positive... It is. Or is it... Well, I was contemplating this the other day. Is it a kind of... The more people that see live as, right, okay, I can earn some money, we can get the band back together and go out and do that, if that is the case. But as more people do it, does that drive down the overall value of it so they'll start earning less and less out of it as more and more people are doing it? Do you know what I mean? In live? Yeah. I don't know. Or do you it just think seems to be a fairly everyone? insatiable demand for, for, for bands and for live music. People want to go out and see live bands. And maybe that's where people are getting it. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. Recording music is some way, in some way not as... Um, or, or the fact that we have access to the entire catalogue of recorded music at our fingertips means that new music what does it matter in a way you know like doesn't matter when the music is yeah if you want a thing you can just listen to you know if you want to hear got to give it up you can listen to got to give it up like we won't you can just if you want that feeling you don't need a new thing to do it so maybe yeah. that I don't I don't really know what's happening but but it's it's not just about what's being created, because I think there are a lot of really young human beings who would love to play 
music together like, yeah. and do something brilliant, but no one will sign it. No one will sign it. No one wants to yeah. know. Um, whether there was, you know, but it's got to become brilliant to be signed. But people won't do it unless they have a they can see other people going through that gateway and going, oh, that's I love that. I'm going to do that. They're getting there with that. Yeah, you know, something has to champion it. But when you've got every woman performer, pretty much without an instrument, no one gets to play an instrument. Yeah. Um, even the band, even female front of bands, Wolf Alice, whatever, you know. I can't, I, I'm thinking that she doesn't she doesn't play I'm not, I'm right. not discrediting her for that but yeah, I'm just yeah. saying like even the bands that get through Jade Bird is the one exception in the last while a girl with a guitar and unfortunately we're not seeing Jade Bird um, flourishing no. um, the way she should because she's brilliant um, and you know act female A&R person couple of years ago said categorically to me oh you can't sign a girl with a guitar like really mm, oh yeah absolutely it's like oh no girl with a guitar can't sell that that's not that's not sellable shit you think you would think that would be more set maybe more sellable now than ever yeah and 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 that's 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 a female in the industry yeah 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 who is cutting that out so um, and obviously we've got Ed, who is a guitar smashing genius, at, you know, at the top of the world and doing his thing. And 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 then you've got other boys with acoustic guitar backdrops, you know, um, whether it's the Lewis Capaldi's or Tom Walker's or different people, you know. Um, but the interesting thing about that stuff is that it doesn't really sound or feel that different to the other records I'm talking about you know it's yeah. still it's no one's really playing together and that's why live music is really really exciting why people want yeah. it people people are playing this stuff it's like the sound of people playing you yeah know? it's the engagement of people playing together isn't it it's like and then the shared experience of everyone yeah. being there together yeah yeah and no one and you listen to an old record and that's what you're getting you know you're hearing people yeah playing brilliantly together you know um, and that's not all that music should be god knows like uh, Our Friends Electric wasn't made that way I don't think. And, you know yeah. it still sounds like it's some. It's probably a lot of overdubs but um, it still has its rhythmic quirks you know Yeah. Um, so yeah I, I, I don't know and yet you know like there's some great, there's some great records around, aren't there? You know, there's some great, there's some great stuff. I would just love to see mainstream music have a chink in it. It's never, it's never, it's not like, apart from a couple of heydays, it hasn't been highly processed and highly manipulated. Of course, that's the vast majority of it. It's just now that everything is, you know. Yeah. So there's not even one or two things where there's space for um, a band. Or an artist who who plays an instrument <laughs> to kind of come come through that thing, you know. 
Yeah, and you were talking about convenience earlier and obviously sitting in your studio with an array of nice equipment. The sort of the thing, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, you can just make it on a laptop and get a, you know, with a microphone, that's all you need. But do you think that is all you need? I mean, it's... I don't want to sort of extend this myth that you need a studio and lots of fancy gear to make a good record because the, it's the idea and the song that sells itself eventually. But do you think that a certain level of sort of production and sheen has to be kind of applied to something for it to stand up against everything else? That's genre defined, I think. I think if you're working in a certain area, like... You know, if you want to make an, an Americana record and get a Grammy for it, like, you need to be in a great space with great gear and record it beautifully. Like, it's it, it kind of, it's probably that in America, you know, that's just kind of the standards of that yeah. particular genre. Um, But I don't think... I don't think it matters at all. I'm a believer that it doesn't matter in the slightest. Right. Intrinsically, because really what it is, like this thing that we're all trying to do, is about a great idea and a great performance of a great idea. Those, the combination of those two things. As long as someone can, as long as there's the transfer of that energy from the physical performance of it to someone's ears, I don't give a crap what happens in between. Right. That just has, that energy has to come through the, whatever medium it's coming yeah, through. Yeah, I see. And... Um, so an iPhone recording can do that like and if the song is if the song is what people as a populace you know that lots of people need to hear then potentially that could just sail past everything because it's what everybody needs to hear yeah um, and it's the energy everybody needs to encounter but there's no getting away from the fact that there is something very, very pleasing about great sounding records. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really I there's I just, just I don't know, I just eat it up. I love listening to records that sound great. It's a thing in itself, you know. Yeah. Um I guess it immerses you more than like it wraps itself around you and it's all dive into it don't you rather than it's just something an annoying noise in the back yeah yeah you you do and and to get the sound of a great AC30 you know two tape or to your doll like in a, in a in a really lush way that comes out of the speakers in a really lush way it's 
the more you feel the energy of that is what like that's an energy in itself yeah. great guitar amp great guitar if that energy coming out of your headphones it's super fulfilling for me i just i'm like <laughs> oh let's do that it's glorious you know so i want to hear that thing so as it's kind of like it's translating it isn't it and it's making sure what you feel when you make the record is what the person feels that's listening to it yeah but then we're playing with pra- uh, yeah totally And but it's playing with the parameters of what's possible as that comes through because then when you're putting the elements together you're making decisions about just how just how much space to leave for other things and just how dynamic you want everything to be and it's another part of where we are right now that is, you know things are um, pretty undynamic and um, that's still the case I thought that that had sort of been put to bed a little while ago up the lab and smalls but I still think everybody's in the habit yeah and I think that you're still in the loudest loudness war when you send your demo to the record label yeah you know they're still putting on a hi-fi straight off their iPhone and you're MP3 needs to be louder than the next person they play in the yeah, yeah. A&R meeting, you know. So I'm still very much in a loud, loudness war right. if I choose to be, you yeah. know. Um, it always helps for your record to be loud um, and you're trying to get the best out of all of that. Um, in terms of the the way that the platforms, streaming platforms are playing things out, I'm not sure if that's come in. Maybe it has come in. Um, and you know anything I've been making recently I've been getting great mastering engineers to do it so I'm pretty sure they're looking after that stuff you know and it's always sounded sounded good you know and if I'm making a record it's a different thing than making a demo but um I've lost my train of thought but yeah gear it's like you know it's good because it helps it adds heart I mean, you know it's all adding or subtracting in some way yeah um, I guess or, the thing is to know what you're adding and what you're subtracting to be making those decisions rather than leaving it to chance yeah yeah if you know what a piece of gear does you can employ it to its best you know its best purpose that's for sure but it's yeah. not a case of just lusting after gear because you think it will make things sound better. Well, fair? I lust after gear all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you, the problem, the problem that I find is that you don't know. You just rely on what other people say. You go on gear slots or whatever, and you read loads of people's accounts, different things, and you go. Oh, Everybody says that this will make it way better. Maybe it'll make it way better. But how are you supposed to find out until... And even, you know, you get the loan of a thing and you use it for a while, but I've found, like, you don't really get under the hood of a bit of gear and really figure out sweet spots and how to use it. Tell me about it for, like, six months. You know, you have to be kind of, like, really getting into it. Yeah. And... and, and trying it on multiple sources you kind of get the loan of something for two weeks and you're like oh yeah you know intrinsically you can compare it to your inbox and go oh yeah this is better yeah. but actually to figure out what it does really really well you've got to use it on multiple sources and 
go around the houses a little bit. Um, but I think a lot of the time, you know, people sing and dance about certain bits of gear because they are really good. And it's just like, it's like, you know, that 73 Les Paul um, through my audio kitchen little chopper. It's, I mean, it's, it's insane. It's like, it's like every classic record because every bit of everything is the real deal, you know? Yeah. It's just, and there are valves just singeing the, the ass out of it. And it's, it sounds brilliant. And I remember being a kid and playing through a Yamaha transistor app amp with a broken distortion circuit with a square telly or my West Home Concord and wondering why, why doesn't this sound like that classic yeah. rock record? Just every time I hit a chord, I can't hear any of the notes. <laughs> I could just sounds like, and, and then eventually you get the gear that people were playing those records effectively yeah. through. Like, oh right. All the harmonic information's there. Everything is singing and dancing, you know. Every note comes through crystal clear and it sounds exactly like that record, you know. Yeah. It's it there is a reason for it. Like yeah. you know Well let's not get bogged down in gear talk because otherwise that's that's another couple of hours. Damn, damn <laughs> <laughs> So what are your let's sort of head towards the end what are your hopes for the music world that you're in or music from your point of view what are your hopes for it and do you have any advice for anybody that might want to follow a similar path yeah um, I mean my hopes are that the stream providers particularly Spotify um, just at some point value creators like and and the major labels also show some value to creators uh, because really you cannot make a career on it being a songwriter anymore right um, um, I sit on two committees at the Ivers Academy uh, the Songwriters Committee and the Ivers the Ivers Develop Awards Committee um Songwriters Committee are like are almost our entire focus is um, to try to create an environment where you can have a career as a songwriter again because um, the portion of income that a songwriter receives in comparison to the record maker is minuscule and the majors seem to have no interest in changing that because they own the publishers anyway and it's convenient for them to keep the market share on the record label side. Yeah. Um, and the platforms, I mean, I know like Google are, are making attempts to sort of look like they're the friend of songwriters. Yeah. But they're suing us effectively at the minute. They're taking right. their... their Apple are the only streaming service that have uh, accepted the increase in America in, of US royalty and, and the kind of the attempt to rebalance the, the equity. Right. 
and uh, Spotify are fighting it, and uh, for unknown reason, I can't. I can't it's, it's impossible. How how will they ever provide us, or unless they think that AI is going to put us all out out of this? Yeah, it's going to make the music for everybody. Um, but otherwise, I have no idea why they want to penalise songwriters for creating their content. It's like yeah, that's. that's feels totally what's the word it's like against what they want to sell a product but they don't want to pay to sell the product yeah 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 it doesn't it doesn't make any sense and they sort of like to build themselves as the saviors of the industry we've saved the industry we've brought money back in the industry and it's like you save record labels yeah but as a like you know for me my my you know what what if I put put a track out with an artist next week it's a fraction of of what we would um, receive in royalties compared yeah. to ten years ago it's, yeah. it's 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 insane so um so I would love to see change there and I think it's only a matter of time because you can't um really sustain it's unsustainable you know right um, an advice I think uh, my 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 marketing uh, the, the, the sort of great John Dyer who, who ran marketing at Played Again Sam um, who's a wonderful human and, and grateful to have him involved in my career um, he used to say to me um I think it was two. He, he, he used to say, and this is expectation management kind of thing. You only need, you only need two good days a year. That's all you need. And I was kind of like, and he said, I keep telling everybody in the office that too. I'm like, look, relax. We only need two good days a year. And I think in music, he's right. Right. It's like, if I have two really good days and the song comes together the right artists in the room we do the right thing that's my good day and actually that's enough in music that's a weird thing about it is that the rest of the time I'm trying to have the good day yeah but if I look back over the last 10 years it really is about that's pretty right (laughs) actually it's kind of weird and those are the economic those are the kind not economic that's the kind of balance of things but he's not saying do fuck all for the rest of the time, is he? No, I'm assuming. No, but I think it's I, I think it's a really lovely thing because it helps you to go. Okay, today just wasn't my good day, yeah. but there's however many are left now. You know, yeah, it's the first yeah. of January. You're like, oh well, there's 364 left. So that's fine. You know, yeah. um, and you you yeah, you're just hoping today's that good day. It's like, but but that is kind of comes down to that at, at times you know where those little like the successes are so few and far between I think yeah. that's what what the inference of that is, is like do not go into every day expecting to have major success it's just not how it's it's not how this is yeah done. unrealistic expectations um, but then the other bit of advice is show up like because if you let the two good days a year thing sort of defeat your morale and you stop showing up then you won't 
<laughs> you lose, you drop your probability yeah, of having yeah, a yeah. good day yeah. by by like exponentially by not showing up. So you've got to show up. Yeah. Just be there. Whatever room it is, if something's happening, be in it. Yeah. It's like it's that simple. And then life, because you don't know if if you're in that room, someone else walks in and you strike up a great dialogue with that person and then your life changes like it's it it is kind of that simple and it is all about people like it's all about it's about human connection it's not about someone randomly hearing your work somewhere and like fireworks going on you know genuinely looking back that hasn't really happened. No. It's about connection to people, conversation, finding common common ground, loving the same things, yeah. making something fresh out of that, connecting to someone. It's all, it's just a web of connections. And um, so my advice to songwriters, because it, it, a lot of songwriters will get in touch and go, how do I... Um, you know, how do I get a cut? Like, how do I get a song and a record? Yeah. And my thing is like, where do you live? And they go, oh, I live in Sunderland. Um, well, who's the best artist in Sunderland? Like, who, who, who do you think is really, really good? Just go to that person and say, should we write a song? Like, you can write a song with anybody. You don't. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you've got to somehow jump, get and the. the you know, top A and R person in London to put you in a session with yeah. Adele or something. You know what I mean? It's not, that's not that's part not, of this role. Yeah. It's like if you bring, if you feel like you've got something to brilliant to bring, then actually, if you get together the best person you know locally, you pro and genuinely you're doing something brilliant, then send it to that A and R person because they're going to hear that you're doing something brilliant. It's that. Yeah. It's kind of that simple, you know. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's that's where the magic lies. Like I think you know, like just just uh, connections. You know, approach people and approach people realistically. Like go down yeah. realistic routes rather than like this thing and lightning's gonna drop out of the sky. Yeah. I am not it. <laughs> it's all been hard graft. <laughs> all right, on that happy note. Thanks for doing. Oh, no, thanks no for coming worries. on. No worries, sorry for blabbing on. <laughs> it's a two-parter for sure. Yes, yeah, just a it's a good uh, good stretch. So there we are, the end of season two and uh, a two-parter with my mate Ian Archer. So thanks for listening this season. If this is your first one, then there's loads to go at. They're all up on iTunes. Please uh, get involved, subscribe and like and do all that stuff. Leave a kind review if you would like to. Uh, as for season three, we had a couple of people like potentially lined up for season two that haven't happened, and hopefully they will happen. But obviously, everyone's on lockdown uh, unless we can do them over Skype or push something forward that way. Then obviously, there's not going to be much happening in the way. But if you've got any suggestions of people you might like me to speak to, then uh, do get in touch. Probably the best way is at Chris Cracknell DJ on Instagram. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you spending time here on this podcast and 
checking out what I do and the conversations that I have. As I said at the top, I find them really inspirational talking to all these people about their journeys in music. And uh, I hope you get some inspiration from them too. And well, that's it really. I hope you're all safe. I hope you stay well. I hope wherever you are, lockdown, that um, you have loved ones near you and your cupboards have got enough food and that you have enough loo roll and for now i wish you a peaceful next few months all right take care bye